welcome to the Celtics Pride Podcast on the Celtics Blog Podcast feed. I am your host, Adam Motenko. Co-host with me, as always, my twin brother, Josh Motenko. What's up, Josh? That's right, y'all. Sharing Celtics knowledge since Sherman Douglas's breakout game. He had a breakout game? I was there, Adam. Did he have 20 assists? Is that what you're talking about? No, that was... Uh, no, no, that was, that was later. He had a big assist game. This is riveting. Mike Minkoff, how's it going? Yeah, let's get to the important stuff. Me. <laughs> hey, guys. Sharing Celtics knowledge since Larry Bird's mullet. Josh is but just not good openers. Here. No, these are no. not good openers. This is also I was, not I a was, workshop I was, space. I was there for Michael Adams' uh, big game against the Celtics, whenever that was. Yeah, I was at the Garden. Welcome to sharing, sharing Celtics knowledge since we gave Rick Pitino Red Auerbach's job title. Welcome to the okay. Personal Reflections podcast about random basketball experiences. Today on the Celtics Pride podcast, the state of the Celtics after the first two games and scrimmages. We're going to recap what's happened in the last week or so. We're going to go to Coach Josh for a coach's corner, looking at what the Celtics have been doing on the court. We're going to look at the standings and look ahead at both the Celtics schedule and potential matchups in the playoffs based on where things are in the standings. And then we're going to go back to Coach Josh for some NBA overrated. Starting with the Celtics, uh, the state of the Celtics after the first two games. Mike, I don't know about you, but um, Jason Tatum's first game drove me bonkers. He was two for 18, and one of those makes was off of the uh, the, the putback uh, by Giannis when Tatum was the uh, on the wrong basket when Tatum was the closest guy. So he's basically one for 17. He looked like he had zero confidence. He was passing up open three-pointers that he would usually take and make to drive into the lane and pull up for mid-range shots that he was bricking horribly. Uh, he was complaining to the refs, which drove me uh, crazy. And uh, I definitely complained to you after this game. He came back. I want to say he scored 36 in the second game. And it just reminded me uh, where we've come in this season with Tatum. We're at the beginning of the season. The question was, can he take a leap and be one of the top players in the NBA? Clearly he has. Uh, And after he showed that in the regular season, our big question on this podcast was, can he be consistent? And we really didn't get a chance to see that in the regular season because it got cut short. What have you been seeing from Tatum? Am I crazy? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm forced to respond by just kind of asking an open-ended question here to you, Josh, like, you know, for our longer, longer tenured listeners, it's well documented that Adam is nine minutes, your senior Josh. So I just have to wonder if you were subject to the same unrelenting scrutiny uh, by your big brother, Adam, as Jason Tatum is two games into this super weird pandemic, uh, suspended season because yeah, he had a dud, but for it to drive you crazy for it to drive you bonkers is, uh, seems like an overreaction, Adam. I I mean, he came back, he had a great second game. He scored 34 points and an important win for us against, uh, whoever we just played. (laughs) Who did we just play? Totally blanking Portland. Yeah. And Dame, thankfully not to go for the game tying three um you know in in that in the game against portland he looked he looked like tatum but wasn't it just last week that we were 
you know, asking very openly, the question is, you know, how quick is his ascension to a true super duper star going to be where he's consistently carrying this load at this elite level, which is an acknowledgement that we don't really think he's there yet. Right. And this is why, I mean, Josh, Adam and I were, were saying we're not, we're not really all in on the Celtics, on the Celtics being that serious as a championship contender this year because it requires Tatum to really be at that true superstar level. It requires Jalen to really be at that kind of 1B or or 2A level. Um, You know, the Celtics showed some some signs and Tatum showed a nice bounce, bounce back, but he's still susceptible to having duds like he did in Milwaukee. And I think that was a little bit um, exceptional on the dud scale for him. I don't think we're going to see that many more. What really is a one for 18 with a Milwaukee assist. Uh, but, uh, but I think it, I, I, I do think you're a little, you're being a little crazy here, Adam. Well, I'm he, waiting on, go ahead, Josh. He, you know, Tatum, he was off balance. The first game, he just was not shooting the ball. Well, he was leaning and, and, he, it was obvious, you know, he wasn't happy with his performance. And what did he do after the game? What do you think he did when he got back to his hotel room, Adam? I think he called what's his face, his trainer, and Drew said, Hanlon. "What thought?" Oh, I thought, I thought he called his barber. Exactly. <laughs> he's like, he's like, he, you know, because everybody came into this bubble either looking all shabby or having a new look. And Tatum came in with the beard grown out, the hair grown out for the first time in his. NBA career, I mean, probably for the first time for him since he was like 16, 17 years old. Um, so I think he just was like, I need old Tatum back. I got to shave the head down. I'm bummed. And, and boom, what did he do next game? I liked I liked long hair Tatum, and because he, he went for 34 the next game, uh, I don't think we're ever going to see long hair Tatum again. I think literally that was the first <laughs> and last game he'll play with longer hair. I think we're getting that Tatum fade for the, the next, hopefully, 15 to 20 years. I don't know about you guys, but when there is something that's not going right in my life and it feels like I'm not sure what to do, what I can control to shift it, I will definitely cut my hair. And I don't yeah, look, think I'm alone in that. We've all and had it, the post-breakup questionable haircut <laughs> decision. Like, that is that is a universal experience. <laughs> and by the looks of the cut, it looked like he went back and cut his own hair. Like, it did not look like he went to the, the NBA barber or whoever they got in there. Yeah, can we talk about that? I mean, we know that they have a barber, and, and I believe that uh, there was uh, a lot of competition for, for the spots uh, in the, about who was cutting the hair. Uh, that's, that's a big deal, I'm sure, to the players. Um, could Tatum not have gotten a little fade in, or why is it all one length? What's going on there? So, no, he, he cut it all down to the first fade length on the sides. It was it was an obvious impulsive haircut, um, you know. But I mean, we got more notes. We'll talk later in the pod about the hair because I think we should save that that inconsequential stuff till the end, you know. So, Josh, do you think that Drew Hamlin I was mean, his I second think... call? Um, no, I think he called. I think he called Deuce. Yeah, I think he called okay. the fam. He talked to them. I don't think he's running to his trainer every time he has a bad game necessarily. So uh, the other question I have. Is can I get some backup on the complaining to the refs? Am I? Is that yeah? Yeah. No, problem? complaining to the complaining to the refs is egregious. It it's out of control. He needs to just watch Marcus Smart 
who gets who who well the thing with smart is he has like this kind of condescending smirk on his face when he gets a yes. bad call which probably doesn't do him any favors either but it's way better than outright complaining every time um yeah tatum is awful with the complaining to the refs i'm with i'm with yeah. you there adam you're not crazy on that one and it goes deep mike this is i'm glad you brought up marcus smart because this goes way deeper than just you know not complaining like if you're a young player listening there's a couple ways that you can react when you get a bad call obviously the nba players have been overreacting for a long time Tatum, especially young players tatum's still a young player so he's going to overreact you see you can tell the older players they don't react as much as the younger players but what marcus smart does is to me is interesting you know as a coach one of my uh, i guess idols was phil jackson and how he brought eastern and Native American philosophy into his coaching practices and different cultural pieces. Um, and, and to me, Marcus Smart, he's just smiling it off. You know, things bounce off of you more if you just have a smile on your face and you're not, you know, if you're being amused and you try to create a sense of amusement for yourself about it. You know, even if it's a negative thing, you, you see Marcus Smart, he's either cracking a joke to the ref or trying to seem clever with what he's saying to the ref, or he's just giving a big smirk you know, whether it's for the cameras or for the refs, that's, that's the way the Dalai Lama would handle it. You know, you, something negative happens, you smile about it. And I think that that's a silly thing. If you're listening, you're like, that's, that's ridiculous. That's silly. You know, I'm a, I'm a grown man. I'm a pro basketball player or, or just I'm a, I'm a kid and this is a tough sport. Like, I'm not going to just smile about it. It's, it's negative. I've had players say that to me when I've tried to coach them on this issue. But I think you can see from what Marcus is doing, that is the best way to handle it. No, and I think I think Marcus used to complain a lot more when he was younger, exactly. and he used to be more of a hothead. Uh, you know, he was never nearly as as you know as much of a quote unquote hothead as as his reputation, like coming out of college, suggested that he had that one bad incident. Um, but he you mean when he went into the stands and pushed the fan. Yes, yeah, that was intense. That, that 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 was intense. But he, but I think he got a bad rap. Like I, th I think, you know, yeah. and I think his, his character, character. Yeah. His character has, has shown, you know, has shown strong, uh, more than strong in his tenure as a, as a Celtic, I think, but he was, he was definitely more reactive. He would get more frustrated. I think his growth is part of a reflection of, he gets much more benefit of the doubt as, as he's been in the NBA longer because his defense is so elite and referees do recognize that. So that makes it a little easier for him to uh, take a more mature approach in responding to bad calls when they happen. Um, but he, he definitely has a better approach and, and yeah, I'm with you a more Buddhist approach, uh, <laughs> a more Tao, Tao of Tao of Marcus approach. Um, with the referees, uh, Tatum is egregious, and really, if anyone's going to complain violently—well, uh, not actually violently—towards the refs, it should be Daniel Tice, who gets the worst frickin' whistle in the NBA. Josh, are yeah, we talking about the refs now, or do you want to wait? No, we're talking about the refs now. And and you know, to start, Adam, I totally agree. Tatum will straight up stop playing. He'll stare at the refs and stop trying. That's he will not, not run back on defense. There was there was a play against Portland where. Dame Lillard dove for the ball while Tatum stopped playing. Yeah. And even Marcus Smart on that play was like walking and Dame out hustled both of them. It was, it was embarrassing. 
And I've had I've heard some broadcasts and some podcasts talking about refs and calling out certain refs. Like, well, this certain ref has always bad. It's always a debacle when this ref's on the floor. I don't even really believe that necessarily. And and I but I have taken issue with the refs. Everybody is getting their feet wet and getting the kinks out, getting the rust off. And I actually think the refs more so than the players right now. Thank you. I've been like more frustrated than, than Tatum's first game, I have been frustrated with the refs. Uh, some of these calls in both games have been pretty egregious. Um, you know, I, I hate being, I don't want to be the podcast that complains about the refs. Uh, what I will Power say. Power through, Adam. Power through. <laughs> what, what I will say is that the call, the backcourt call, that is just crazy, yeah. um, appears to be a problem with the rule not the interpretation of the rule or, or the actual call. Uh, Mark Spears posted the ref's response to some questions about that call. So this is when, at the end of the Portland game, Tatum was bringing the ball. Um, he, he's, his body had not passed half court yet, but the ball did. And then he passed it um, sort of, I, I kept thinking back to old Patriots replays of laterals. This was a backwards, this was definitely a lateral. It was a backwards pass, but... Um, because the ball had crossed the plane of the backcourt to the front court, that then made Tatum effectively in the front court. And when you pass the ball after it, the ball has passed the plane uh, to a player who has not fully established that they are in the front court, which is done by placing two feet in the front court, that is a backcourt violation. That rule needs to get changed. So I hope the NBA focuses on that this, this offseason. What have you guys seen from the refs? I mean, I, I've watched a lot of games, and and they're bad to both sides in most of the games. It's like just bad calls, it's, and it's not any particular type of call. It's just they're just getting a lot wrong, and I just think they're getting the rust off. I hope that doesn't continue yeah. when, when the playoffs start. I mean, if you take four months off of anything, you're going to be bad at it when you start up again. Like... It just takes time to get back in a rhythm, which is why, going back to your original question, Adam, I think you're being kind of bonkers about Tatum. Like, everyone else happened to have a good game. It was against a high-profile opponent. But, you know, you come back after a long layoff. You probably put – Tatum probably puts a lot of pressure on himself, especially in a marquee game. And he just didn't have the confidence. He wasn't feeling it. Um, I think the referees have uh, definitely been sloppy. But I think it's to be expected. I think I think you just kind of grind out these eight games, and and probably by midway through the first round or into the second round, we should start seeing, you know, a, a higher caliber product all around. Well, I will shake off the uh, the, the the frustration about the refs and about Tatum, and I'll t- I will take on a uh, an approach from the Tao of Marcus and take a more Buddhist. Except can we change? Is it too late to change our podcast name? Can we Dow of Marcus? <laughs> I will say I'm very impressed with the relationship that Marcus has with the referees. For a guy that's flopping all of the time and as aggressive as he is, he's able to have full on conversations and they seem to really like him in the way that they interact with him. Um, I, I'd be remiss if I did not point out that he did get a $15,000 fine for talking about how the refs just wanted to keep Giannis in the game. What did you guys think out. of that call? What did you What did you think of that? Which one? Block? There were multiple calls. Block. No, well, so okay, so there were two 
primarily two primary controversial calls with Giannis right at the end of the game. There was the uh, what is it hostile act call Ugh. that wasn't a penalty where Giannis was fighting to get around a screen and basically just gut punched Tice. Um, and then there was the call that was initially ruled an offensive foul with, with right. Smart drawing the charge. And then after replay was overturned to be a block saying that Marcus had an established position outside of the, the circle. Do we know so the rule I, I'm on specifically? Esta- do we know the rule on establishing position? Do you have to do it before the player jumps in the air or something? Yeah, yeah. I, that, I don't I know the, the rule for sure, but I assume if that's not what the rule says, it's certainly how I would think the rule should be. No, that's and how the rule Frank, says. That yeah. If, if, and let me let me speak since I know the rule. Um, they they fine. when the player jumps, you have to have established position. Um, okay. you know, so, and he was still moving forward out of the restricted area in order to establish the position that would have given him the charge, but he was moving while Giannis was already in the air. So yeah. the, the, I thought that's what the whole deal was going to be about, but they didn't even talk about that. They were just saying he was still moving. So Josh, um, since you know all of the rules, what about the one where, uh, Giannis like threw his uh, palm into Tice's stomach? Yeah, I think that's a foul. <laughs> uh, I don't think you need yeah. to know the rules of basketball to know besides just that's a foul. Yeah, but that one seemed look, the more when, when, foul to me. When I used to teach uh, at the junior college I coached at, I used to teach a, basket, uh, a sports refereeing, sports officiating course. And one of the things, the topics in the course, we would I would always want to make sure that we touch on this, um, the Donaghy uh, referee scandal, you know, where the... The mafia was involved, and and he basically came out saying that in the locker room, the refs will say things like, you know, Allen Iverson's in the game tonight, like we're not going to give him the calls, or we're going to give him the calls. Like these are conversations that would happen. Obviously, this is back in the '90s, um, in the locker room of the officials before the game. Like they're talking about how to officiate the game based on who's playing, and we all know that the NBA wants their stars, especially their top two stars. LeBron and Giannis to be, you know, and Steph Curry, I would put in that category as well, to be uh, like almost taken care of, you know, and not, not to the point where I think that the NBA's office in New York is actually telling the officials association, here's how it's going to go. You're going to give Giannis all the calls, you know, but um, those kinds of conversations we know do have happened in the NBA in the locker rooms before the games of the officials. So um, I wouldn't put it past, you know, Marcus Smart, him getting fined for kind of calling out the truth. Um, I don't have any insider knowledge of it, but, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if if they're trying to keep Giannis on the floor. I think that's potentially real. One of the things, Josh, that surprised me was that the people calling the game, and this was true both for Scalabrini and Mike Gorman, but also for the national broadcasts with Mark Jackson and Jeff Van Gundy, they did not know the rules nor did they bring anybody in that could explain the rules. Um, and it made me want to ask you, how do, how do coaches in the NBA typically teach the rules to players? Because they often seem, don't seem to know the rules either. I don't, I'm not sure about the NBA. I know that at Fresno State, we would have an official come in before preseason just to talk about what the points of emphasis were for the upcoming year, because they're always, they're always trying to adapt the rules and evolve the rules. And, you know, especially in the last five, six years, a lot of rules have been added. 
um, especially you know considering the restricted area and jumping straight up um, in that area as opposed to outside of that area. So there's some so always some new wrinkles, and that's the opportunity. It's you know a one one hour type of one day thing at the beginning of the preseason, you know which you're not really getting a full education on interpreting any rules as a player um, besides just from playing all your life. Another ref question for you, Josh, if you are Daniel Tice, who I agree with Scal gets a horrible whistle, what can you do to change it? I mean, I was watching this game thinking, can't, can't his agent do something to call attention to this? No, I, I mean, I think I think it's the kind of thing if you make it to higher levels of play in terms of the playoffs, you make it a couple of rounds into the playoffs, you're going to get better refs in the higher, the more important games. Um, the more the broadcasters see it and call it out in those high high level games that everybody's watching, the more I think it'll become like part more commonplace across the NBA as an opinion. Like, yeah, Daniel Tice is getting a raw deal. If I'm him, what do I do? Um, I don't know. I've been watching the way he kind of handles things. He's always, you know, like getting up injured, like all banged up, looking at the refs like, what? That foul was on me? Really? Like he's always shocked. And then he immediately goes to try to explain. And then he kind of like gives up and is just like, I don't, you know, like I can't, I'm over it. Like I'm done. I can't believe it. So I, I don't think that's the best way to respond. Obviously the shock, you're not going to be able to control that. Have the shock. I would th- I would do <laughs> I would do what Marcus does, be completely shocked and then smile at them and like in a knowing way, and maybe there'll be some kind of guilt in that human referee's mind or heart, and they'll and they'll actually think about whether they made the wrong decision or not. I think the more a player kind of argues or tries to explain themselves, the more the referees are trained for good reason just to kind of be like, okay, this conversation's over, I'm done, and to, and to shut that down. Um, but these people are humans, you know? So I think you've got to reach them on a human level. Coming yeah, I back, think that's key. Right. I think you I think you've got to build relation like, you know, and he's only in his second year, right? So right. he still has he's to build third year, relationships. Right? Is it I third he was year? His third year. Yeah, he's on his second contract. Oh wow. This guy's in his third year. He's 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 a veteran at this point. He's getting treated like a rookie. First year uh, he, starter. He's a starter on a on a contender. Yeah, regardless, he need, he needs to focus on building stronger rapport with the referees cuz I think most of his interactions come kind of as Josh described, they're like after he just got elbowed in the face and he's kind of apoplectic and then trying to explain why the ref is wrong. And he you know, Marcus has the relationship he has with the refs because he is um kind of wired to to take the the long the long view stri- strategic approach, and he has cultivated these relationships over time, um, because you know he's kind of he's kind of like the Chris Paul mold. It's all about gamesmanship with Marcus Smart. So he knows if he builds a relationship, that's going to enable him to get away with flopping like in six years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Daniel Tice needs to needs to take a, a at least a a couple paragraphs from the book of Marcus here. We've got the Tao of Marcus and the book of Marcus. Um, and yeah, just, just build, build these relationships, uh, build a bit more of a foundation. Cause he does get a really raw deal. I mean, he literally got elbowed in the head and somehow got a foul called against him towards the end of the game against Portland. Um, 
But man, but this, is, yeah, this is a discipline thing. I mean, it doesn't matter what industry you're in. If you're being, if you're, if you're disciplining someone or you're being disciplined and the response to being disciplined is, what, are you serious? Oh my God, I can't believe it. Uh, you're not even going to listen. Fine. I'm going to walk away. Like, is that the mature way to handle things or not? You know? And so if you, even if you're like strategically doing it in a fake way, if you are able to respond in what looks like a mature way of like, smile, come on, are you serious? Really? Okay. And then you move on as a, as a person disciplining you, like you're going to get more out of that by seeing a mature response, but it, you're going to kind of wave the person off if they're being, if they're acting immature, even if it's totally genuine, like it seems to be from Tice. But it depends. I mean, if you've got a long, if you've got a well-established relationship with someone, you can be a little bit more emotional and reactive in your response and they'll give you a longer leash. They'll be like, oh, I know this person. That's not who this person is, but they're just having a reaction. So they can kind of see that from a different lens as well. So it goes, it cuts both ways. So I agree, you, you know, when, especially when you're building a relationship, you need to be more contained and more disciplined in the way that you manage your response and, and channel your response. But as you cultivate relationships with, with the referees, and this is any human relationship, you can be, you, you kind of afford yourself a little bit of a wider room for reaction that's a little bit more normal. You can show yourself a little bit more true, and that person will give you a bit more benefit of the doubt. Let's come back to the state of the Celtics. To my eyes, Jalen Brown has looked like the number two option on offense. Uh, he's been playing with confidence, shooting well from deep, showing off his post game and his mid-range, nasty fallaways. He's been taking it hard to the, the basket, defending really well. There was a play against Giannis where he was kind of aggressively uh, egging Giannis on as he was dribbling a, a, a behind the three-point arc. Um, I think Kemba is the number two option when fully healthy and playing full minutes. But um, Brown has looked amazing. It makes me feel like Hayward, who's also been playing well, is now the fourth option on offense. Uh, what have you guys seen from Brown and Hayward? That's where we want it to be. We want Brown to be the second or third option. We want Hayward to be in the fourth position. I think what Brown has done is to raise his game to the next level. Obviously, he's shooting the ball really well, and he's really on balance there. But he's playing off of two feet really well in the paint, whether it's driving it hard to the, to, you know, to the rim and finishing in stride off of two feet, or whether it's getting into the lane with the jump stop and being able to use some up fakes and pivots and, and to get to that fadeaway that he's really good at, which, I mean, there was one move late in the game against Portland where he was at like four feet from the rim and shooting a fadeaway against a smaller guard. So, I mean, he's just playing really strong just by using two feet to finish. Yeah, I mean, I I don't I don't see Jalen as our number 2 option as you as you noted Adam, I expect that to be Kemba. Um I do I I'm glad you noted. I I do think I agree that um Hayward is playing really well as well. Um I think you know, for the Celtics to be where, you know, at their ceiling, they need both Hayward and Jalen need to take what is given to them and not force the issue on mm -hmm. offense. Um, I think Jalen is looking a little bit better than he will over the long run because he's shooting has been really good the first couple of games. 
and he's not always going to shoot quite this well. I mean, I think Marcus Smart, Smart has also been playing really well. He should he deserves to be yeah. named um, just just up there with those guys. And his you know his passing has been tremendous the first two games, uh, and it's always really really good and and generally underrated. But um, no, I think I think Jalen's doing exactly what we want him to do. He's taking he's taking advantage of the opportunities that are coming his way in the offense. I think overall the offense is kind of playing with the type of balance. Uh, that it's intended to play with. And for the most part, people are not forcing the action. Um, I like Josh that you noted and praised Jalen's ability to play kind of with good balance and off of two feet. I think that's one thing that we were starting to see in February Tatum do well. And I think he's kind of um, uh, uh, lost, lost some of that a little bit after the layoff, you know, that was, that was the, one of the newer developments for him was being able to kind of get into the paint, jump stop, uh, effectively draw contact in a way that allows him to finish through it. Um, and, and that's something that has been totally missing the first two games for Tatum. So Jalen, you know, Jalen, as you said, Adam, his fadeaways are, are, are really pretty. He had this crazy double clutch against Portland, uh, like a mid range double clutch jumper over, Nurkic, uh, that was so, so pretty. Um, he, you know, I think he went six for eight from three. He's not going to shoot that well, and he's not going to score quite at this clip. But as long as he is not forced, you know, there are a few, there have been a few plays where he's gotten a little bit excited. He tried to kind of go one-on-one and started bringing out the showtime dribble and all of that stuff. I, he got called for palming on one um, or a carry, and he, on, on another, he just kind of forced a turnover. Um, so as long as he stays within himself and and only takes what the offense is giving him, then that's exactly what we need from Jalen. But I don't I, I don't see him as a true number two scoring option because I think he's the type of player that is going to be best if he's taking advantage of the situations the offense gives to him. Whereas a true number two would be more like Kemba, who can create more of his own offense. I think you're going to see that change, Mike, especially over the next few years. As, maybe, as, maybe in a few, maybe in two or three yeah. years. But I, but as far as like this year, I don't want to see Jalen trying to create too much offense by himself. I think he, you know, the one-on-one post-ups into the fadeaway jump shot, or if he if he gets the ball in rotation and gets a slightly rotating defender so that he kind of blows past him on the angle, like that's all good. I want that. But I, you know, when he gets it isolated on the wing, um, and the defense is somewhat set, I don't really want him tr- trying to break down the defender because right now he still tries to put a little too much sauce into that, right. and and tends to over dribble instead of keeping the defense in mo- motion and rotation. I do think mentally he seems to be aware of whether Kemba and Tatum are feeling it or not, and whether he needs to pick up the slack or not. Um, Again, something that that we saw a lot of from Scottie Pippen, and I, I keep bringing this up because not, I'm not trying to say that Jalen's going to be as great as Scottie was, um, but you know, kind of the fit for our team of the highest level wing defender we have, um, because as much as Tatum's kind of coming along and has a longer frame, you know, I think Jalen Brown is overall just a better athlete and has more, but, a higher motor. 
Um, Isn't Marcus Smart the best wing defender on our team anyways? Well, sure, <laughs> and yeah. center Marcus defender Smart, and point Marcus, guard defender. Yeah. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I misspoke there. Sorry. Um, but but in terms of you know being like the number two guy on a championship team, I think that Jalen Brown can do that. Maybe it's not this year. Um, and I think that the fact that Kemba wasn't playing his normal minutes and didn't play at the end of the game, you know, there's been a lot made of this with Zion in the national media of why are they playing him in the beginning of the fourth quarter and not at the end of the fourth quarter. They're doing the same thing with Kemba. And the reason is that all the science that the GMs are looking at is saying that you want to play them when they're not as cold. And if you wait, if you play them at the beginning of the second half after they've gotten a warm-up at halftime, you know, they're warm, so you play them at the beginning of the second half. If you wait all the way until the end of the fourth quarter, they're going to be a lot colder. So that's what the GMs are looking at in terms of the science. That's why Kemba's not playing at the end of the fourth quarter. That's why Zion's not playing at the end of the game either. But, you know, you could see Kemba on the bench just irritated, wiggling. You know, just he wanted to play so bad in crunch time. And, you know, props to him, props to Kemba, first of all, for, for going through that and, and listening and not complaining. Um, but also, this is good for our team. It's really good for the younger guys to have to step up. That's something our Celtics team has always been good at. Even, you know, going back to, to when we had Kyrie and Al Horford and, you know, the young guys stepped up with Rozier and, and helped out in the playoffs. Like, we are constantly a team that will be challenged and rise to the occasion in that way. Jalen Brown, you know, exceeded expectations in this past game. And we're 13-0 and on the year when he's got over 25 points. He had 30 in this game. So I'm not saying he should go out and try to get 25, but when he does, in the flow of the offense, it means good things for the Celtics. One of the other things that I, I saw in these first couple games is that we still struggle with good big men. Nurkic played really well against us. Tice had a really hard time guarding him. Cantor played 20 minutes but was a plus 16 on the game, the best plus minus on the team. Uh, it seems to me like he should have played more minutes. Uh, I'm concerned about guarding big men going forward, especially depending on who we play in the playoffs. Uh, are you guys worried about this? Is there a hole in the middle? Yes, this is one of our top three fatal flaws on the team. And along, I think Wanamaker getting the minutes he got, you know, I'm, I'm down on Wanamaker today, as of today. I just think that we need to upgrade that backup point guard position. Hopefully when Kemba's playing more minutes, you know, Wanamaker only needs to play three to five minutes a game. But when he's playing bigger minutes, you know, he, he's having trouble too. But Grant Williams had trouble with Nurkic too. Yeah, we definitely struggle to guard these bigger players. I brought it up on the pad, on the pod uh, two weeks ago. Mike. Ooh. Um... I mean, the, the backups were the same in both games. Smart, Cantor, Wanamaker, Ojale, and a little bit, a sprinkling of Grant Williams. I've been surprised that Robert Williams has I, not I, gotten in at yeah. all. I am surprised that we have seen that the ratio of Shemi Ojale to Rob Williams has been something positive to zero. Um, that, that seems askew to me. Josh, I thought of you, and this was really actually during like our, our exhibition game against Phoenix, but the second I watched Shemi Ojale, like dribbling the ball, I was like, wow, if there's one thing I did not miss at all, at all during the NBA layoff, 
it was watching Shemi Ojale on offense. <laughs> um, yeah, we got guys on the court who just should he, not be out there. He's been I, – I guess he's been acceptable on defense, but not not certainly not spectacular. His offense has been rough, uh, unsurprisingly. He did make at least one three against Portland. Um, yeah, I you know I think I think the Portland game made clear like Nurkic destroyed us, um, and that makes me very very nervous for a matchup against Philly and Embiid, uh, who is just a better version in every possible way than Nurkic. Um, and or Philly even, is extra even scary. Even Bam well, Philly's extra scary because they they have two bigs that they can right. put on the court at the same time, which is what Portland could do. And so we couldn't, we just don't have enough big bodies to match up with that unless somebody like um, Rob Williams is in our rotation. And it seems for whatever reason, he's just out. And we're not even trying to tune him up for the playoffs. So, yeah. I, I do think we have a hole in the middle because um, I think I think it's pretty clear Grant Williams is not an adequate substitute against these true seven footer um, big men. And, you know, right now we're kind of on a collision course with Philly uh, for that first round, which is exactly what we all said we didn't want. And not only is Tice struggling on defense against those really big players, he's not stretching the floor enough on offense to get them to guard him fully. Uh I don't know if he took five, six threes a game, if he would hit at a high enough percentage, but I'm not opposed to finding out. Um, and they talked about that on the broadcast. I do think Brad is, has been tinkering all year with, with the backups, and I would not be surprised if he continued doing so over the next six games. Um, and I, the playoffs are always matchup de- dependent. So uh, just because we haven't seen Robert Williams does not mean that we won't. I was reminded, based on seeing who was out there, um, how much Brad loves Ojale. Uh, but also, I made a bunch of notes uh, around nice things I saw in the, uh, I keep wanting to call it the preseason, but the, uh, uh, the scrimmages. Things like, oh, Grant Williams had a nice game against Houston. Shemi has showed increased aggressiveness on offense, taking shots and drives. Uh, Carson Edwards has shown increased confidence, had that awesome dunk on Harden and Westbrook in that scrimmage. Josh, I remember you saying Brad is coaching him like he's the least confident guy on the team. There was this um, this note in the media that Brad said that Romeo was going to be in the rotation. His defense is getting him opportunities. He guarded Harden. Uh, he took that challenge really well. Uh, he's been taking it nice to the basket, showing some uh, a nice floater, uh, getting to the line, rebounding aggressively, cutting hard. He's beginning to learn how to create off the dribble, uh, shows a nice sort of basketball IQ, some intangibles that I think are really hard to teach. Uh, none of that stuff matters. None of that stuff matters. Uh, they, they are relegated to the deep bench, and they will only get playing time if if injuries happen. Right, which and so you know, obviously, what Danny is trying to do is he he's getting a veteran in from overseas, Wanamaker, which is obviously an upgrade from you know the guys that we used to have, uh, Shane Larkin and, and guys like that. Um, but you know, when you're trying to win a championship or you're trying to to get through the playoffs like this, those guys aren't going to cut it. And so, okay, what else is Danny doing? Well, he's he's drafting these guys, Carson Edwards. He's drafting young guys. 
even Ojale to to a certain extent. You know, that's a homegrown guy who you're hoping can grow and develop into a contributor. And God, he's either he's just too young yet, or he's not going to be good enough. You know, like those these guys just aren't going to cut it. Um, and so, would you rather see someone like Romeo, who's got some star potential inside of there, that's way too young, get the minutes? And, and possibly make some of the mistake, same mistakes, you know, ripping through to his left to drive baseline and the ball just goes right off his leg out of bounds like Ojale. Or, you know, God, watching Brad Wanamaker try to pass in the fast break, it's like, I feel like Romeo can Wait, 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 time out. When did Brad Wanamaker try to pass in the fast break? Yeah, I, that's actually one of my notes. I still have never seen him pass on a fast break. Maybe one. If he's on a fast break, he's it's a beeline to the hoop. Yeah, and that needs to be in a scouting report. I, I think other teams just you should just stop guarding everybody else on a fast break. Triple team Wanamaker, which happened. On, I think it was towards the end of the game against Milwaukee that basically happened, and he went through them anyways or tried. It was, I'm not it even joking. Well. I honestly think he. I've never seen him pass on a fast break. It's no, a little bit on. insane. No, look, I, I, my take on him is when I've seen him pass on the fast break, which I can't recall the game time or the game. <laughs> yeah, Josh, I have a but, homework assignment for you for for our okay. net by our, the time of our next meeting. Send us two clips of Brad Wanamaker passing on a fast break. I don't want to because I feel like two. the timing's always off. I feel like he's just always off with his timing of when he delivers the ball. It, it's just yeah, a. Because- it's a it's a slower level of a fast break than than what we need for the NBA. This is like he's, quantum he's physics. Fast breaks. Is it is the timing off if it never happens? <laughs> Brad Watermaker passes in the woods and nobody's around to hear it. Okay, any other burning observations, conclusions, thoughts on the first week? Are we are we getting Josh? Have we reached the time where we can discuss the rest of the hair thoughts? <laughs> No, not yet. We're going to take a break. We will be right back. Welcome back. Uh, Josh, Coach Mo, Coach Josh, you've got a Coach's Corner here, a segment that we love when you share something that you're seeing that that Brad is doing on the court. What have you seen in the first couple of games that you'd like to talk about today? Well, my preface to my coach's corner is, you know, Mike, you brought up Dame Lillard choosing not to shoot the game-tying three in the game, the the last game. Um, That was an inbounds, a sideline out-of-bounds play uh, where we had Tice, you know, he started, we were in a zone, and we were defending both corners and everything above the break, you know, outside the three-point line. And and Tice started the play kind of around the elbow, and then he moved up to the three-point line and and then obviously they threw the ball inbounds and and uh, Dame just threw it right into Nurkic for a layup. Now they're down one, and I kept replaying that play. Like I think I think that was intentional. I think he brought Tice all the way up. Like he knows that them getting a two doesn't matter that much. They're still going to have to inbound the ball and foul to take us to the free throw line. And maybe Brad knew he you know the, that Portland was out of timeouts. Um, so I, I kind of sure I'm sure that, Brad knew that. Yeah, I mean that that was a huge play and, and an interesting um, decision by Brad and by Daniel Tice, whether, you know, if it was intentional. Um, so that's, you know, I guess one, one a is Brad's new wrinkle. And I'm trying to figure out what, what is really going on with this new wrinkle that he's doing right now. He, in the Phoenix game, uh, obviously considered preseason, 
he came out in the first quarter with a one two one one full court press as it was a zone press like a diamond zone press um and then he did it again in the milwaukee game and i'm trying to think like is this just brad being a college coach turned into an nba coach who's in this environment trying to make sure that his guys are responding to actual coaching like i'm gonna throw something in there let's see how they do um and it was a preseason game when he tried it the first time you know or is he really thinking like this is something that we want to use later on because I think he's just trying to junk up the game um, and maybe use this in the future. But, you know, if you put it in early, you give them time to work on it. You can see where their their head space is at. Because some of these teams, you know, obviously they're going through their pregame notes and stuff and then they're rolling the ball out. They're not doing a whole lot of play calling because their stars are doing that kind of stuff. But, you know, Brad's a little different. Um, so I think he's testing their mental aptitude a little bit by giving them, you know, something. And it could be anything just to see how they listen, how they come together, how they get it done. You know, he wants to kind of create mental challenges for them um, to work on communication and, and getting them to gel. And maybe, and this was also, he used it the first game after, you know, the, the whole Chris Paul statement of, you know, Chris Paul was, was owning the game because he was talking and, and verbalizing things so much. And so maybe trying to get them to talk more on defense was, you know, the big, the big thing for that game. But um I just think that that new wrinkle, that diamond press, I wonder if we're going to see it again and uh, whether we're going to see other kind of half-court zones. What do you guys think? I read or heard somewhere that uh, as the bubble was restarting, coaches were talking to other coaches in the other conference or coaches who uh, they knew they were not going to play until maybe the finals uh, about what they about strategy, about what they were thinking against different teams, about how they were approaching uh, coaching their teams in the bubble, in, in the preseason, the, the scrimmages, and what is now, I guess, technically the regular season. And I'm, I'm wondering how much of this uh, is Brad uh, utilizing certain um, coaching techniques that would allow him to not give away in sort of a Belichickian way uh, what he actually wants to do against specific teams like a Milwaukee, who uh, is the road to the finals, goes through Milwaukee in the East. Uh, so uh, how much of this is, is him, him preparing his team um, for things other than actually playing that team versus holding on to the, the cards that he wants to play? or testing the other team. Uh, it's honestly probably above my head. <laughs> well said, brother. Well said. <laughs> I mean, you said, I don't I, know. <laughs> I don't believe Brad is doing things solely to, you know, exercise the minds of the players. Um, there, I, I, I would expect that anything he's running out there, should, I, I think Josh, that that can certainly be a part of it, a piece of it. Um, but anything he's running out there has a potential to be applied in a real game situation. You know, I don't think he's wasting. He, he's not the type that's going to waste minutes or opportunities for for live ball simulation um, with the players. So. You know, I think this diamond diamond zone certainly could be thrown out, and it could be a wrinkle that he wants to play. You know, t- 
toss out with two minutes to go in game six of a second round series. And that might be the only time we see it, but he wants to make sure the players can, can adjust and apply it in a real, real game scenario. Um, and I definitely think Brad is doing some of the Belichickian uh, kind of being coy about what he will and won't do and when he will and won't do it. Um, and so certainly showing, showing a false hand sometimes or not, not wanting to give away his kind of core strategy against an opponent in these, these kind of last eight games uh, before getting into the, you know, the real chess match of a, of a seven game playoff series. So I got a question for you guys. This obviously, you know, okay. So just to cap that off, Mike, you know, obviously he's going to be, you think he's going to use it again. Um, Brad has used that play that, that one, two, one, one diamond zone press after timeouts. So let's, let's uh, see if he uses that again. Uh, but I got a question kind of overall for you guys about about just we got what six games left to go before the playoffs start, right? I mean, I don't think as as the referees are dusting everything off and the players are getting their jump shot down, I mean, we only have a few games here before we really got to get rolling and we need to know who we can trust right now. Um, and and uh, I feel like the preseason games as well were maybe more important than we you know than we realized. Like. We're looking at it like some people are looking at it like, well, Tatum's had a whole four months off. Like, what do you expect him to do in this first game back? But we need to know if these guys are ready to go right now, right? I think we know who Brad trusts at this point with maybe a, one or two tweaks. And I kind of, that's what I'm looking at when I'm watching other games too, is like, who's actually ready now? Um, so, I mean, we can go into standings or, or who you guys are impressed with. Yeah, underrated. let's let's shift to a standings watch, Mike. The Celtics are one and one in the first two games, uh, pretty solid in the three spot as of right now. Which is uh, we're, we're recording this Monday at about eight thirty. The Miami Heat won today, so they are two and a half games back of the Celtics. No, in the, the Miami Miami Heat lost today. To oh, Toronto. sorry. Yeah, they lost. So they're two and a half back from the Celtics. Mike, what are you seeing in the standings? What are you worried about? What should we be looking at as fans? So in the East, I mean, based on just the first uh, couple, you know, two to three games, depending on on what teams have played, uh, it's basically all but officially locked up. Well, Milwaukee is locked in, I think, officially, maybe not technically, but basically locked into the one. Toronto is basically locked into the two. Um, We could still potentially slide back to the four, but... If we we play Miami tomorrow Tuesday evening, if we win that game, uh, we are uh, probably more than ninety percent odds of of finishing at number three. Um, so that that is a potentially significant game. Uh, Indiana beat Philly the other game, so they're a game and a half up, and I think might have the tiebreaker over Philly. Um, TJ Warren went off for 53 points, which uh, is interesting. Uh, probably doesn't really scare you much in a playoff series, but um, today, but that, that's what you, today, that's what you got to do when you don't have Sabonis, you know, when you're yeah. un, uh, shorthanded. 
or Devo. Right, right, right. Today, Indiana yeah. beat Washington. Warren uh, scored thirty-four again. So he's Washington actually show up. I thought I thought I heard Washington already left Orlando. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know, Philly a game and a half behind Indiana. I mean, for Orlando is gonna you know who no one cares about where Orlando finishes. Orlando did just lose Jonathan Isaac uh, to an ACL tear. So that's let's not that's talk kind about of, Orlando. So obviously we're not, that's all I was saying about Orlando and then Brooklyn. So Orlando and Brooklyn are seven and eight. So basically what matters here in the Eastern conference standings is as we all talked about last week, none of us want us to match up against the 76ers. And right now we seem to be on a collision course for exactly that uh, with the Celtics at the three and Philly at the six, there's still a possibility. Philly could move up to the five. There's still a possibility. Boston could move down to the four. Um, so with all of that, should we lose tomorrow to Miami? Even if we did, we're still a game and a half back. I mean, up. Yeah. Up. Sorry. Uh, I, I think, I, I think I feel like we're locked in at the three. I mean, obviously not statistically, but that's my expectation. Um, uh, Josh, you, you're a little prescient here. You said, uh, that the Celtics were going to go seven and one, uh, and lose the one loss. That's not prescient. <laughs> We all predicted that the Celtics were going to lose to the Bucks, and they've gone one and one. If Josh gets the next six right, then he's prescient. Let's not overstate. I know you've got the Matenko bloodlines here, but uh, come on. <laughs> Mike, I'm going to ask you to take a page from the Marcus Smart book and no, calm I'm down. I'm going I'm going full on Jason Tatum here. This is a ridiculous ref. This is ridiculous. <laughs> it's a clear foul. <laughs> Uh, you know, we should not lose to Miami on purpose to avoid Philly. Sorry, no. Josh, do you have different thoughts on this? I mean, we'd basically be losing to our former selves. I mean, Jay Crowder's getting 34 minutes. Kelly Last, Olenek, I forgot Kelly, Crowder was on the Kelly heat. Olenek. I forgot that happened. They're they're solid, and they're going to you know play like junkyard dogs. Um, I don't think we should lose intentionally to them, no. I think that we are going to be fine against Philadelphia as well. Obviously, it's it's not the ideal matchup for our first round matchup, but um, I'm not too concerned with Philadelphia. I'm concerned about Embiid, but I'm not concerned about Simmons at all. And therefore, and, and I'm not concerned about Tobias Harris either. I think those guys are a little overrated. Um, and it's to the point where I feel like when I watch Philly play, like Simmons is going to have to be traded in the next couple of years. Like, and, and they better hope that they can package Horford or Tobias Harris's contract with them because they're just going to have to go in another direction, Philly. Um, so, yeah, so I'm not actually have, too concerned. I have two questions for you guys. Um, so one, and, and Adam, Adam asked me this actually before the podcast, but uh, do you think Philly, so this is for you, Josh, do you think Philly would rather face Miami or Boston in the first round? I think they'd rather face Boston because Boston doesn't have Bam Adebayo to guard Embiid. That's what I think. That's, that's what that's I think too. Only shot. That's they what I know. Think too. They know that Simmons is not carrying them to anything. Even though uh, Miami's got three bigs that they play regularly, with Olynyk, um, who's Myers Leonard and yeah. Bam Adebayo. 
Where, bomb. So that, bomb, bomb, bam, bam, out of bio, <laughs> lip balm. <laughs> so yes. that allows Philly to play Horford and um, Hor- and uh, Embiid together, which I think the last game only happened like six minutes. You think they'd rather play the Celtics, Josh? Yeah, absolutely. The Sixers haven't been that good all year with Horford and Embiid on the yeah. floor together. Josh, I'd like to offer um, Gordon Hayward and Kemba Walker for Simmons and Embiid. Wait, Josh wasn't proposing Simmons and Embiid. He was saying Simmons and Horford or Simmons. Simmons and Horford for for Gordon Hayward and and Kemba Walker. I'm I'm interested in that deal. Yeah, I would would have to think about that deal. I'd have to go talk to Mike Zarin about that one. Uh, Okay, so... That's interesting to hear you say that you think Philly would rather play the Celtics, Josh, and more so that you are not concerned about the Celtics playing Philly, because I certainly am. I think that's a bad matchup in the first round. I'd rather play Miami, Indiana, Orlando, or Brooklyn. I fully agree with that statement. So you think that Philly is going to be able to go into Embiid and dominate us, which I think they will, but then be able to pass the ball back out to the perimeter and rely on what Josh Richardson and Tobias Harris to knock down all their threes. Shea yeah, Martin's I would, I would put, and Matisse I, Thibel. And I think that, that I, I, I'm worried. I mean, Ben Simmons is a beast against the Celtics. He dominates in the paint against the Celtics. I believe Philly will beat the Celtics in a first. Whoa. Wow. I don't think that, wait, wait, wait. So are we documenting that Mike? Yeah, I will. I'm putting that on there. I, I, I don't, think this Celtics team I think we saw it even in the the collapse against Portland we saw it at the end against Milwaukee I think when teams are bigger and stronger than us we can't overcome that I I mean the difference between Portland and Philly is that Philly's bigs are better like a lot better um they don't have Dame but they don't they're not going to need to rely on perimeter shooting to beat us. And I think I don't think they'll t- be able to yeah. win with with inside scoring alone from Simmons and Embiid. I think that they're going to have to knock down shots from the perimeter, and I don't think they'll they're have to shooters knock down are reliable. Some. I don't think their shooters are reliable enough. So, but th- this this goes to my second question because I think this is really big, and we talked about this a little bit uh, in our last episode as well, but. From what you've seen, do you think there's a home court advantage in the bubble? Minor. Crowd noise seems to have an effect, even though I, I'm a little bit surprised. And I kind of like that they've got uh, these the, the fans, as opposed to baseball, which has these random cardboard cutouts. At least they have live, actual Celtics fans, many of whom have uh, uh, personal affinity to the players playing. I think that does make some difference, but it's not the same. I, you know, the whole idea that the younger, fresher legs are going to do better in this bubble is false. The idea that there's a home court advantage, I think, is also false. I think that the players who are going to show to be better in this situation are the the veterans, the guys who've been in all these different situations before. Um, I think that's why you're seeing, like, some people like like even Carmelo to a certain extent, but I'm thinking of like Dion Waiters and and some of these other retreads who are just complete trash. Like 
they're actually able to be serviceable in this environment because they've they know what to do you know they they they're either malcontents who are now you know 10-year vets and can actually be trusted because they've just been through it so many times um or they're guys who who just know what to do and have have a few years under their belt so i mean i think that that the celtics and the sixers are not in that category i mean you got you got the clippers you got to, to a lesser extent the bucks um you know because they have guys like wesley matthews and Brooke Lopez um, and Middleton's been around a long time, you know, so they, George Hill, I mean, they have that makeup of, they know what to do. Um, and then the Lakers are in that category as well, at least for a few of their players, they still have some major question marks, but I don't think there's a home court advantage as much as people say it is. I think what matters is we got eight games, so we need to know who we can trust right now. And we need to know who's ready to go and, and actually going to perform. And that's the vets. Well, in terms of the, the schedules of, of Indiana and Philly, because I'm still rooting for, for Philly to, to pass Indiana in the standings, uh, Indiana plays Orlando, Phoenix, L.A., Miami twice. So there could be a flip-flop there if they lose uh, or if they beat Miami twice. Uh, and Houston that doesn't matter, wants. though, to us. It doesn't matter to us. That's right. Um, and uh, whereas the Sixers play San Antonio, Tonight, they're playing right now. Washington, Orlando, Portland, Phoenix, Toronto, and Houston. So Indiana's got a tougher schedule. Um, I'm just writing this this down. Mike says Philly beats the Celtics in the 2020 first-round playoff matchup if they play each other. Josh, uh, you're not worried. Is this a bet you're taking, Josh, or am I just writing this down as a prediction? Oh, I would bet that. Yeah, I All would right. bet. So you're taking that bet. I'm putting this down right below Josh saying that Carson Edwards will shoot 38% from three in a season playing 15 minutes per game, Mike says it will never happen. Yeah, but I got years to see if that <laughs> I know. We have no time limit on that. I Wait, think, I don't I, think, I think that wasn't long. the bet. That wasn't the bet. It wasn't on Carson Edwards shooting 38% from three. It was on Carson Edwards being a decent NBA player. That's what we have written here. No, yeah, there was no, about the bet was not 38%. It was not yeah, 38% we, from three. No, we were talking about him being decent. And, and I, I remember we needed to, to, in order to have the bet, we had to, to say what that means. Yeah, but I didn't, I did not agree to a bet on 38% from three. Wow. I mean, how the way you, you speak about Carson, I would think that that would be. A, you'd be no, because it, cause he could shoot 38% <laughs> from three on like one shot. Like in, or like point six attempts a game in fifteen minutes per game. I don't think so. Yeah, That's I mean he he's hopefully not shooting more than point three Mike, times a game. Mike, the yes. good thing is is that Carson Edwards' career is looking like it's either going to go in one of two directions. It's either going to no, be it's really going bad. in one of one directions. There's a it's a one it's a one way road to never playing fifteen minutes a game. So that part shouldn't even be an issue. But <laughs> or um, if he starts knocking down that jump shot that we know is really you know has worked at every other level of play. You know he's gonna. He could end up having a decent career. Well, if only the NBA rotation. wasn't wasn't a better level of play than every other level that he's performed at. <laughs> what about the big bet, y'all? What about the big one? Let's revisit that. Yeah, Adams. Big, Adams gonna get Adam, Adams getting two briskets coming his way. Oh, the, that's what's course. happening with the big bet. The big bet. The bet about whether the uh, uh, the championship crowned. Champion. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, it's looking it's, it's looking pretty good for Adam. Mike, uh, looking ahead, the Celtics play back-to-backs against Miami and Brooklyn on Tuesday and Wednesday, uh, then again on Friday against Toronto, and rounding out the next week in, on Sunday uh, against Orlando. Uh, things you're looking out for in those games? I mean, I, I really would like to see Rob Williams play some. Uh, I've got a, a, I mean, my feeling is that the fact that he hasn't played at all means that we're not going to see him basically for, for the rest of the season, which I think would be really unfortunate. Uh, to be honest, in the first two games, I thought the Celtics offense has looked fantastic. Um, where we're moving the ball, we're taking advantage of defenses and rotations. We're putting tons of pressure on the team. We've also shot pretty well. Um, and I don't know if we want to quite rely on uh, hitting at as high a percentage from outside as we have been. So I guess I'd like to see Tatum get back to generating uh, points at the free throw line the way he was towards the end of the the first part of this regular season. Because um, we really haven't seen that in the first two games. And that was really becoming a huge part of his offensive repertoire. Um, and, and it's... Generally speaking, when we talk about his ascension to superstardom, it's it's an essential part. He he has to be able to get to the line 10, 11 times a game. Um, and that that's essential as well in the playoffs and putting, you know, putting the other team in uh, in the bonus or putting getting the Celtics into the bonus and putting the other team in, in free throw trouble or in foul trouble, etc. So that would be the one thing I really want to see uh, develop over the next six games. Josh, anything you're looking out for? I just want to see the Celtics play the kind of defense that that is good that we're going to need to play to win a championship, and we need to start displaying that now. That means Tatum needs to really start rotating. Um, you know, everybody needs to be in line with each other. It's it's to me, it's more about us playing our game and getting to to the the next level of where we can go as a team, which we've already been at earlier this season. It's about you know memory remembering what that was like to be at that level and being at that level. I'm not really as concerned with the other teams unless we're playing the Lakers, the Clippers, or the Milwaukee Bucks, uh, and to a lesser extent, the Raptors. Let's shift now to... Wait, wait, wait. What about oh. you, Adam? Honestly, I, I'm looking at the how are the how's the team going to uh, round out the bench. Um, when is Kemba Walker going to get injured again and... and uh, Marcus Smart spots oh, into the starting lineup. Um, these games, I, I, it's just about rhythm, and uh, I'm not really too concerned about it. I'm, I'm really like, let's get to the playoffs. Matchups are going to matter so much more than we're we're just uh, fulfilling television contracts right now. That's how I'm looking at it. All right, let's shift to NBA overrated and underrated. Uh, Josh, apparently you have been watching NBA games, like full games that are not the Celtics. Um, I have really only been paying attention to the Celtics of late. I know Mike barely cares about the Celtics, let alone the rest of the NBA. Which brings me to two questions for you, Josh. Number one, do you think you're better than us? And number two, are you big-timing us? (laughs) The answer to both those questions is yes. (laughs) Um, uh, We've already talked about a couple of my, my... overrated candidates right now, Simmons and Tobias Harris. I just don't see them getting it done. Um, and actually, the, the other uh, of, of my overrated is, is kind of a whole team of cast of characters. 
Um, and while I did, did mention Dion Waiters and, and those veterans as being guys who are serviceable and, and can actually be trusted, I just think the Lakers have too many of those guys, too many former malcontents, too many distractions. I just don't see the Lakers getting it done. You know, I know, Adam, I, you know, you and I predicted that the Clippers would win it all last week on the pod. Um, and there just seems to be a lot of people around the world thinking that the, that the Lakers are going to win because they have two dominant superstars and their cast of characters. Just, I just don't, I think they're overrated. I think Kuzma's overrated. I think Dion Waiters and Jarrah Smith are, are washed up at this point. Um, even though they're, you know, better than maybe a young rookie. Um, even Marcus, Markeith Morris, um, it is Markeith, right? On the yeah, because Marcus yeah, is on the, the Clippers. Yeah, Markeith, he's just he he's just waiting for his shot. He's waiting for that ball to swing around so that he can get his shot, his turn. Um, it's like dumpster diving for bodies, like regardless of team chemistry. Like even Danny Green, who who's one of my all time favorite role players, he's just past his prime. They have too many guys from the the scrap heap, um, and Caruso's like. Alex Caruso is competing to be their third best player. You know, that it's just, I just don't see that working for them. Um, but guys who I'm impressed with, who I think are underrated right now, Paul George, for sure. Paul George played better than Kawhi Leonard against the Lakers. He, and he'd been at this point a few uh, years ago with Indiana when he was just dominating in the playoffs as, you know, carrying that team on his shoulders. And then obviously the shoulders broke down. Um, to the point where he had two issues with, you know, with both of his shoulders in the playoffs last year, still trying to gut it out. And now those shoulders are healed and his shot is, is back. And there's, there's one thing about the NBA playoffs that, that is a difference maker. If you have experience and you've been deep in the playoffs like Paul George has, um, and your shot is just a laser, that, that's somewhat unstoppable. Um, Two other guys that I wanted to mention, Luca. Obviously, he's playing out of his mind, and on this podcast, I, I don't say this lightly, but he is the only player that I've ever seen who looks like he's doing things that Larry Bird used to do. Um, reminds me of Larry. Mark Jackson recently said that he's that Luca Doncic is a combination of Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, um, and I just think that Luca has the ability to play out of his mind. Um, I'm waiting, like you said about Kemba, Adam, I'm waiting for Luka to get injured. He, he has these falls and gets these bumps and bruises during each of the games that look, they look worse than, than normal when they happen to him. Um, and so I, I kind of think that's low-key the, the major issue for Luka Doncic. But, I mean, that dude is just, he's one of the best players that this game has ever seen. Um, and it's, it's crazy to me. Um, and then the, another guy who's really impressed is Kyle Lowry a guy who's always been counted out his entire career, even dating back to you know his Villanova days um, when he was on that team with Alan Ray. And they, you know, he's, he was counted out when he was with Kawhi Leonard and he won a championship. Kawhi's gone. They're counted out again. And he, this guy can, can do some damage for them. If you look yeah, at if- Kyle Lowry and you compare him to, this is a question for both of you, you compare him to guys I guess in his like second tier of, of elite point guards, like Mike Conley, like Kemba, like Derek Rose, even like if you were going to take other point guards of the same generation who are not Hall of Famers, whose career would you rather have if you had to jump into their body? 
I think it would be Kyle Lowry. Oh, it would definitely be Kyle Lowry. I think. I mean, what what's exciting about Kyle? Well, a couple of thoughts. Um, one, in the in the general spirit of underrated, I think I think the Toronto Raptors team deserves to be called underrated. I th- I st- think they're still not getting enough credit. Um, and you know, you were talking, Josh, just a moment ago about you know the myth of the young leg teams. You you seem to uh, forget that you were the one talking about that as uh, the theory of who would succeed last week, but we'll ignore that piece. Um, <laughs> well, I'm susceptible uh, but, to jumping but, on the Bill Simmons bandwagon, and, but, and I've seen some things and jumped off. Uh, but and that the, happens um, with Bill Simmons fans every now and then. We all know that it as does. Boston it folks. does. Uh, but the Raptors are very much in that veteran mold. And I think they should have been mentioned in that short list of teams that you cited. Cause they, they are, I think perfectly positioned to excel in this, in this setting. Um, Cause they have, you know, the utmost confidence in their ability. And I think it's spearheaded by Kyle Lowry, who is kind of like, you know, was a, was kind of a junkyard dog type of player, that over time developed, you know, refined his skill and polish um, and, and really just brings winning to, to the game and to his team on a consistent basis. And I think if we're lucky, a Celtics fan will have the opportunity to see Marcus Smart continue to develop in a similar way uh, with the Celtics. I, I think Kyle Lowry's career and Marcus Smart's could, could have a lot of similarities when all is said and done. Um, Weight fluctuations among them. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Fine. <laughs> I just thought I'd interject with something important. That was very, yes. It's what do you think, Adam? That, it, well, it's, I was, the other interjection I was thinking about, which was very uh, green-tinted glasses, uh, is so if Mark Jackson thinks that Luca is a combination of Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, what could... Magic Johnson do that Larry Bird could not maybe defend a little bit better. I, I don't know. But that's a different conversation for another day. Yeah, likely. I've Trouble. got so I've, I've got some underrated. <laughs> uh, yeah, I overrated is, is only Taco Fall. So let's not get into that. Or is it time for underrated, Josh? Yeah. So uh, the players preparation is highly underrated. These guys are ready to go. Like I, especially with all of the, the reports of I don't have a basket to shoot on from multiple players. Uh, I am so impressed with how many players are, are, are feeling it and, and not showing huge signs of rust. Uh, I had on my list here that there has been no major injuries yet. Poor John Isaac. I feel terrible for him. Uh, but, but one of the things that we were worried about is that players were going to get injured really easily so far. And, I don't actually think it's a small sample size issue. I think there's been enough scrimmages and games that I, I, it seems like players have stayed in shape. Uh, so that is one underrated. Uh, the other one, the other major one for me, uh, sorry, Kyrie Irving, but uh, seeing everyone almost, including referees and coaches, taking a knee before every game, uh, using this platform and the media attention to further racial justice action, highly, highly underrated. Uh, I want to read you guys. So uh, Popovich was asked to answer a question. Um, the question was, 
about what is, it was basically what is Marco Bellinelli's status for the game. This comes via Royce Young. And I'm just going to read this, read this really quickly because it's two paragraphs long. So uh, what is Marco Bellinelli's, Bellinelli's status for the game? Greg Popovich says, our number one priority as the country and society is concerned is racial justice, actually racial injustice that exists in our country and trying to make everything just for all people. Just as a, as a reminder, in this world, a lot of people really do not understand the breadth and depth of this horrific situation that black, black people have been in for so long. And I just want to give you one example. We're all doing this on our game days as we find an opportunity, just so people understand how gross we have been, not just now, but in the past. It didn't just happen. It's been this way for hundreds of years. As an example, today, 120 years ago in North Carolina, a constitutional amendment was approved. And what it did was it established a literacy test for black people that they had to pass before they could vote. White people did not have the same literacy test. And it was so gross that they made a rule that if you had a relative before 1863 that had voted and you're still illiterate now, you can vote. So what that so that meant white people could vote if they had a relative before 1863 who voted. Uh, well, black people, while black people were enslaved uh, and didn't have any relatives before 1863 who voted, so they were disenfranchised. There was a former Confederate officer, William Guthrie, who on the eve of the election made a statement and basically said this was very necessary to protect the white women, that they can't go out in the streets and don't feel safe when they're alone. We have to keep the quote unquote colored people away from them. So he emphasized this just on the eve of the election to make sure that their way would be the rule that people had to live under. This sort of activity went on over and over and over again for all this time. And again, it's about education and culture. And none of us knew these kinds of things. None of us were taught these things. Black, brown, Asian, Native American, it doesn't matter. None of us were taught these things. Hopefully, if people understand how gross the situation really is and how long it's been this gross, maybe we can make some heyday. Marco Bellinelli is out tonight, period. That's right. He did not play on Monday. <laughs> oh, pop. Brilliant. So, uh, so uh, real quick, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but what do you guys think about the way the NBA has handled the platform and the use of it? They're donating millions and millions of dollars. Uh, players are speaking up. I do think that uh, kneeling matters. I mean, I, I saw something in the news today that uh, the Navy SEALs were using a Kaepernick jersey as target practice. Uh, the the NBA, and, and I think you have to give the NBA some credit in, in supporting this. Um, I think that I have always thought that they, that they can do more by using this platform and using their stardom. In this day and age, unfortunately, being famous matters and people will pay attention. And these players uh, know that and are using it effectively. And I do think this is going to create change, as it did in the 50s and 60s with guys like Muhammad Ali, Bill Russell, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, uh, Jim Brown, etc. Yeah, I think I think it's I mean, I think it's positive. I think that it's it's great that there's opportunity to take some of the resources that the NBA are gaining um, uh, and and put that towards uh, the important social justice causes and action and energy that's required. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, the symbolism of kneeling is important. It does convey and broadcast a message, but um, 
you know, a lot of the work that needs to be done needs to be done, uh, quote unquote, in the trenches and in the day to day and in interactions with people as as the the quote you just read, Adam, uh, by by Greg Popovich indicated, right? It's education, it's culture, it's it's communication, um, it's it's raising awareness and it's working with people with a wide diversity of opinion and backgrounds and perspectives um, and and coming to greater and, and more common understanding and compassion and empathy um, and a greater kind of sense of fairness and 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 justice and opportunity um, across all individuals so, I think it's great that the the NBA is is taking the opportunity to kind of promote promote some of these important social justice messages, um, but it's you know it's a piece and it's it's not the most important piece, but it's a valuable piece. Um, any other overrated or underrated? I know it's hard to follow that. For me, having basketball back is underrated. It's been awesome. Yeah, Mike, you you were not really that uh, excited a couple of weeks ago. You were like, "Yeah, but the world's going to end. So why why do we care about basketball? How are you feeling today, Mike?" Um, I mean, I'm still kind of in and out. It's been fun watching the games. Um, but you know, I was there is still a lot going on in this world. Uh, there's, there's still a lot going on in this country. Um, that still definitely stresses me out. Uh, there's also, you know, uh, as I mentioned that the other, the other week, we, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be on, on Cape Cod right now. The weather is beautiful. It's summer, not winter. Uh, so, so it, you know, there's a lot of a lot of things pulling me away from a TV and <laughs> watching basketball games as well. Um, but no, it's been it's definitely was fun to watch watch the Bucks game and the Portland game. So that that, that was fun, but it's all it, it does. It also feels a little different than uh, in the throes of of what would have been a normal season. That's for sure. The world yeah, may definitely like... still end. At least we can watch the Celtics as it happens. It feels like we, like everybody kind of grew up a little bit during that, the quarantine, during this pandemic. Um, I feel like you could kind of see that watching the players re-enter the, the, you know, the bubble. Like you see, you see LeBron with a little gray in his beard, which has since now disappeared. Um, you know, and just kind of the looks are a little bit different. You know, obviously a little bit of a lighter note, but I, I thought we could end on. Yeah, Josh, before like, we do that, um, I just want to say like, so I, I've been trying to figure out what is different now than four or five years ago when we, when there were protests, when people were speaking, like Kaepernick were taking a knee, when people were speaking out against police, unjust uh, brutality and violence against black people w- with videos of uh, murders, for lack of a better term. Um but you didn't have this collective consciousness reacting in the way that is happening now. And I keep talking to people and asking, why, what's different? Why now? And the pervasive response, and this is totally anecdotal, but has been uh, that because of COVID, yeah. 
everybody is focused is, is it has the attention span for this. They're able to to receive this. And I think that that creates a, a different platform because of this context for players. And, and that's one of the reasons I think it makes so much sense for them to be to be doing this. But yes, yeah, without without co- without COVID, you would not have a, a bubble to be able to create all new media for the NBA. You would not even have the opportunity to ask the players, or would you come back or not? Because you can't have a bubble if all the superstars say we're not going to play because of this issue, this social issue. Um, and so that became part of the the you know the collective. So I I, I totally agree, and 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 all of us have experienced things. I would think during COVID that we wouldn't have experienced otherwise and had the attention span for certain things that we wouldn't otherwise. Um, and I think also sometimes you reach a tipping point in society where you're, you've been striving for so long for something and eventually it's, it's kind of do or die. And I wonder if there's some of that going on now too. Yeah, I think, I think that last point's really important, Josh. I don't, I think the people being at home and being restless uh, as a result of COVID is a contributing factor. But one of the key differences between now and four or five years ago is that four or five years ago, there wasn't a similar episode four or five years ago um, at the same kind of national scale that, you know, the reality is that put uh, some of these issues on the radar for a lot of people across the country for the first time. Um, and there were, there was, a, there were a number of people that increased their education on some of these issues in the intervening four to five years. Um, didn't necessarily become fully educated, but became relatively more educated than they were when the riots in, in St. Louis um, and other parts of the country happened, you know, in the wake of, of the murder of Michael Brown. Um, I think there's also a dimension where, you know, Josh, you were you were touching on this tipping point. I, you know, I think what we've seen in kind of the the political leadership uh, in the country has has kind of it's led to reactivity on both sides of the political aisle, and I think some of this is is related to to some of that. Um, that reaction and there's there's been kind of a a percentage of the population that's felt kind of pushed to their limit uh based on based on actions of leadership and and so there was kind of a confluence of factors that have really contributed to to the the level of engagement and momentum in this movement so i think certainly covid is one of those factors but but i think there are a number of variables at play here Obviously, there is more work to be done, and uh, in an attempt to segue from this to a far lighter way to end this podcast, uh, another thing that I think uh, uh, has more. It seems work... like we always do this. We always go like super serious, and then all of a sudden we switch. Well, gears. one of the other it's factors at dumb. play <laughs> is the egregious facial hair on Gordon Hayward's face. Well, I was actually going there with my comment about something that needs to go further. So uh, you've noticed, Mike, obviously, that Gordon has a mustache growing, which is longer than his beard. It, my, I, I put in my notes, which are really from the scrimmages, that it was slightly longer. But on the telecast yesterday, it, it was long enough that it looks like he's 
for some reason trying to keep the beard really tight, but is definitely very clearly growing a mustache. And Gordon, I need you to know that I love it. I think it looks fantastic. Uh, it's not as easy to see because you have a blondish tint to your hair. But oh my what God. you need to do is grow it longer. I need to see an old-timey, waxed-out, tipped, wide, horizontal stash. Not, not talking, I do. I'm not talking 80s fluffy Magnum P.I. I'm not talking Kurt Rambis. I'm talking like a turn of the, of the 19th century twirly ends whiskers. I think it would look great on your face. And there is no time like now because your wife is not with you to tell you how much she hates it. Yeah, I do think that's an, a, a, a grossly underutilized team bonding vehicle is uh, the, the waxed mustachio look. Like, you know, that we had, what, the, the Stash Brothers on OKC? I, th- I think the Celtics really can seize upon an opportunity. Let, let Gordon Hayward be a leader for once. I'll bet Ennis Cantor could grow a killer stash. So wait, is is Gordon Hayward a hipster? Because he looks like a hipster. Yeah. Is he one? No, there's well, no in hipster. no possible way is Gordon Hayward a hipster. He's just not As, cool absolutely not. Uh, Adam and I were possibly exchanging ideas on what would be an appropriately boring nickname for Gordon Hayward. He is. There's no way he's a hipster. <laughs> I would just go with dad on that one. Um, <laughs> I like GameCube. Jaylen... I like GameCube, but uh, Adam didn't seem to seem to be in on that one. Josh, you noticed some hair. some hair trends going on. Yeah, is is Jalen Brown growing back to flat top? Is he going to get that cut into the flat top for the playoffs? I was mad when he, he's almost he there. Got rid of it. I, I loved that flat top, and let's keep the early '90s around as long as possible. <laughs> and then, what do you guys? My think only. About... Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, my only hair comment on the Celtics is that I think Marcus Smart's current hair iteration is the best of his career. Yeah, you mentioned so, yeah. that. Um, Josh, you, I think you were just about to ask about Romeo. I love what he's doing there. And I think Carson Edwards is jealous because he had a similar situation going on at the beginning of the season. And kind of like uh, Jason Tatum shaved his head when Carson wasn't <laughs> couldn't hit the side of a barn, uh, he cut all his hair off. And, and if I were him, I'd regret it. We all uh, look the, the the bet that Mike and I have about Carson Edwards coming, you know, reaching his potential. I think it really comes down to the hair. When he cut off the dreads, it was the worst thing he could have done. And you have not seen him shoot besides that one game in the G League this year. You have not seen him shoot like he did in his college career when he had the dreads. And I don't think his game will return. And that I won't win the bet until his dreads come back. He's working on it right now. Um, Romeo obviously went from the crusty of the clown look to having the, the dreads with the, the reddish tips. Um, Tatum's beard has finally filled in. Yo, I got notes here like across the NBA when it comes to hair. <laughs> Tell me it includes LeBron's white side beard. I mean, amazing. For a guy who has been so concerned with his baldness to come out with gray on the side of his beards with no – and like – obviously no regard to what's going on on the top of his head like obviously the front of his his i don't know what do you call it the forehead his forehead is always looking sharp but when the camera looks down to the back of his head you can see the bald spot so you know the forehead is fake like you gotta have the lineup the lineup is the most important thing 
Right. And it's, and every time he makes a basket, like a game ceiling basket and has that super angry face and flexes so hard, you know that he cares about how his forehead looks in that image. So for him to come out actually with the, with the gray on the side of his beards was um, a vulnerable move by LeBron. And a lot of these guys, you know, they let it go a little bit over quarantine, over COVID. And it was cool to see them all come back. Um, some players Gosh, made you know, before, major differences in their look. Before, some didn't. Before we move on from LeBron, doesn't, doesn't his white side beard mean that he's been coloring it this whole time? Yeah. And then, and then all of a sudden he gets a little cut and, and a little color, and it's like, oh, it never happened. It's like, why would you, why would you come in and go on that TV and expose that? Uh, there's some of us. The there's some of us out here with uh, salt and pepper facial hair, our own our own experiences with male pattern baldness that are the same age as LeBron and appreciate his authenticity. You know, oh, nor- it. normalizing normalizing some of these things for the I'm, rest of us. I, I think he should <laughs> go full bald, like grow, grow exactly. Like, I'm trying to think. There was a guy on the um, the Rockets in the in the eighties. I can't remember. His name's Alex Caruso, and he plays for the Lakers. (laughs) Be yourself. The the bald eagle. And and here's the thing. If you're LeBron and you come out with a gray beard and you dominate like people think you will with a gray beard, that's just – that's old manning everybody across the world. I mean, there's no statement bigger than that for LeBron. But then to hide behind like, oh, I got it cut and now it's colored again. You know, it's like – why go back and forth like that? I don't get it. Like, why not just be yourself? Like, if you're balding, be bald. Like, James Harden, what are you doing right now? Why are you growing out twists? Like, you're, you're obviously, you've been cutting your hair around your, your balding patterns on your forehead for a while, which, you know, like, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But if you, that's happening, be yourself. What's wrong? I'm about it. What else, Josh? Um, okay, if you have any, if you have not seen the Sacramento Kings yet, which both of you, I assume, have not seen the Sacramento Kings, let's do this live. Have you guys Correct. watched the Kings yet? No, not a second. The Aaron Fox has cut off all his hair. By the time their next season starts, because their season's going to be over in six games, uh, maybe it'll grow back. I think Bogdan Bogdanovich Go. and and Bielica have both grown out their hair. Bielitsa. Bielitsa. There you go. My bad. Um, yeah, I mean, All right, let's talk about teams in the playoffs. The Denver Nuggets. All right. If you Who have you not watched the Denver Nuggets, just the, just the fact that they're playing Bull Bull at the three, uh, the fact that they're playing lineups with no guards in them at all because Jokic is playing the one and um, Grant is playing the two. Um, and then the fact that they're actually playing zone for like entire games. I don't know if you guys have known this. This is a gimmick. This is for real. Mike Malone, what are you doing? It seems like bull you're bull. for straws. four minutes today in the Denver Nuggets overtime victory over the Oklahoma City Thunder. Uh, more relevant and interesting, Michael Porter Jr. led the team in minutes, 44 minutes, 12 yeah. for 16 from the field, yeah. 4 for 6 from 3, 9 for 9 from the free throw line, 37 points, 12 rebounds, plus 25 on the game. Yeah, Michael Porter Jr. is good, and he's going to play a role this offseason. Bull Bull will not. That uh, got His first scrimmage got a lot of news because there was literally nothing else going on, but that's not going to matter. But then the real thing here for the Nuggets, the real new look is Jokic, skinny Jokic. And I feel like there's a Samson and Delilah thing going on here. 
I actually think that heavy Jokic was more dominant. My favorite part about skinny Jokic is he doesn't move any quicker, but <laughs> I'm guessing he will. He has more stamina now. He right, he's more him. stamina but less powerful, but doesn't move quicker. Well, this less powerful skinny Jokic went for 30, 12, and 10 uh, on the game, so he still seems relatively effective. I think Jokic is just good, fat or skinny. <laughs> controversial opinion (laughs) i don't know if you guys have any candidates for the sean kemp award i think we're still kind of waiting to see every team but you know we kind of we got to come back to that because we did mention it several pods ago well Jokic Um, was our was our number one draft pick Jokic and zion were our were our top picks and neither of them right really really cut it just to remind everyone this is the sean kemp award is who would come back from the layoff having put on like 40 pounds of fat because they didn't think the season was going to resume. Like so Kemp did in did Zoom, did Zoom ruin the potential for this award? Ooh. Uh, do we have video, do we have video workouts to blame? Cause I mean, there was no such thing as Zoom during the NBA lockout in 99. No, there was no way for like video monitoring whether players were actually working out, but now teams, teams had them on, were able to kind of actually, visibly monitor <laughs> the physical activity to some degree of all the players. They probably, they yeah, probably it, have biometrics apps talking about what the players are eating, like totally different world. It may be that the Sean Kemp award has no winner this year. It goes to no one with the honorable mention being CJ McCollum. You think he's, but, uh, yeah, he's definitely bulked up his upper body. It's, it's almost as if, he was either in the gym or he just ate a lot. Well, CJ on his podcast uh, gives people wine recommendations. He's a wine snob. Um, and uh, it's possible he was just drinking Merlot's. Packing on, you know, maybe he doesn't realize the cal- caloric intake of a, a rich red wine and he should switch to uh, champagne. And, and CJ McCollum coming back into the quarantine or from the quarantine into the bubble with the Harry Giles haircut. Uh, not sure if you guys noticed that, or should we call that the Dwight Howard? I uh, know we got to give Harry Giles props for that. He was the first in the NBA to do that. And it looks like now there's two who are following in his footsteps. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen any Memphis games, but John Morant looks two years older. It's amazing what like a little bit of a mustache and goatee can do for you. Um, well, j- before you move on, Josh, that brings us to the – we didn't do a standings watch on Memphis. And I just want to update everybody. Uh, the draft pick. Memphis has not been playing well. They are now no, – They lost again tonight. Oh, did they already? So they're now two games – let me just refresh this. They're two games ahead of San Antonio, two and a half in front of um, Portland. Oh, it's now down to one and a half and two games. Uh, I do not expect Memphis to – uh, make the playoffs this year and that does affect the Celtics draft pick right now it's at 17th if they make the playoffs if they do not make the playoffs it will be 14th uh, basically they they rank order the teams uh, not in the lottery uh, the ones that didn't make the playoffs based on the uh, the standings as of March 11th so uh, good things happening over there in Memphis for the Celtics you can always count on my brother Adam for some little-known knowledge about a future draft pick for the Celtics that may or may not um, come to fruition. 
Well, Danny needs to make some more trades so that I have more to think about uh, in that regard. All right. Anything else, Josh? Any other hair? I mean, look, I could go on and on. Mike Conley cut off his dreads. DeJounte Murray cut off his dreads. Like, guys are changing their look, and there's something to that. I mean, we, we discussed it earlier with Tatum. There's something to, like, changing your shoes or changing your look or, like, what is your identity when you realize some really serious stuff is going on in the world and you're, you've always been an athlete, a basketball player as your identity, and now all of a sudden you have a platform. How are you going to use that? Um, there you go. Tie them together. It's these in-depth observations that you get from the Celtics Pride podcast. Thank you for listening, everyone. Keep listening.